Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a marvelous show for you this week. We are going to be talking about GDPR and the IoT, Z-Wave security issues, why Amazon will buy a security firm, some new cellular products for the industrial internet, and Kevin and I tried out Amazon Smart Scheduling. We're going to tell you how that worked for us. We also have questions about the essential phone and what that means for the essential home efforts. Arlo has been borked for several days. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to get into some news from LG, Elgato, D-Link, Schlage, and Philips Hue. Plus, our guest this week is Jesse Clayton of NVIDIA. He's talking about Jetson, which is actually one of the fastest growing industrial IoT platforms, mostly because it can handle AI at the edge. So you're going to learn a lot about that. Stay tuned for it. We're also going to have a message from Praetorian, a security firm, and a voicemail talking about an enterprise echo skill that we actually thought was pretty sweet. So let's get it all started with a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Bosch. Interested in all things IoT? The Bosch Connected World blog covers a wide range of IoT topics from around the world such as Industry 4.0, Mobility, Smart Home, Blockchain, and Ag Tech. Check out blog.bosch-si.com for articles, case studies, interviews, and more. It's actually one of my favorite blogs. I do find myself linking to those often. So check it out. You'll feel smarter. Now, let's talk about our favorite topic of the week, GDPR. Yay! Okay. GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulations. This was a law that was actually enacted a while back by the EU, but just came into effect on May 25th, so last Friday. And it's been a mess. (laughs) Yes, it's like everyone was kind of treating it like Y2K, only this actually is actually going to have an impact beyond just all the privacy regulations that you've had in your email box. Kevin, have you had a lot of privacy regulations coming in your email box? I've had more privacy regulation notifications and re-up on subscriptions to email addresses that I don't really care about than I normally get at CES. I mean, it's been insane. (laughs) And it's so bad. And some companies are so unprepared for this, which I don't understand why, because we knew it was coming, that certain content providers, news outlets, are actually providing different sites of their news to the EU areas. I believe USA Today is one. And in fact, it's much faster because there's no tracking information, JavaScript, and all kinds of other fun stuff, just HTML, pictures, so on and so forth. So what a mess. It is a mess. I should actually take the time to say to all of our EU citizens and listeners, and pretty much everyone who listens, because I actually care about your privacy, we don't track you when you listen to the podcast. When you go to the website, We don't track you for ad purposes because our sponsors actually pay for everything. They don't get your information. I don't get your information. If you sign up for the newsletter, I do get your email address and I will use it to send you the newsletter. And then also I do use it for marketing on Facebook to you sometimes. So, but not in any weird, crazy way. I don't link it to anything weird or nutty to my knowledge. So just so you know about our ad policies, we try to keep it really respectful. And yeah, I don't want your information. Sorry. 
<laughs> and Kevin, Kevin wants nothing. I don't he want anything. He does want your credit card number. Nope. If you want to send that to him, let him know. No, no, no. All right. So what's happening with the IoT devices is a little bit uncertain so far. But what we have seen is a couple devices have fallen offline. Actually, one noted case. It's a light from a company in China called Yeelight, Y-E-E. <laughs> they stopped supporting their app in Europe. So your lights just, the app won't work. Yeah. I don't think they meant to because they've since fixed it. No? No. No? Oh, that's right. I see an announcement. European server service will be restored within a week. And some people, their devices were going to a server in Germany, and that's where they couldn't access the server. So a few enterprising Yeelight owners said, I'm just switching the server to your Singapore one. And that's how they got around this. But that's not the answer. That's a pretty hardcore route to take for your lights to work. <laughs> and this is why we should have cloudless hubs. Exactly. So a couple other connected devices, what you would see is things like there was a picture on Twitter of someone's Samsung smart refrigerator, family hub refrigerator, displaying a GDPR privacy notice. Now, it's worth noting that this person pointed out that they said, this is just a notification to go to Samsung's webpage. So when you clicked OK, you're actually not opting in. You're just saying, I've seen that I need to go look at this stuff. So that was a good way to do it. Nest also, if people went over to turn their thermostats on they actually showed them a similar notification. So most people's devices seem to be working. There's just a lot of things to read through. I'll tell you, I am reading through a lot of these policies, especially for connected devices. I plan to have something on that soon, but I am currently still reading. <laughs> I may be reading for quite some time. All right. So that's GDPR so far. Now we'll move into last week and a little bit into this week's big story, which was, holy cow, Z-Wave has been hacked. Dun, dun, dun. Only, like many IoT hacking stories, this is maybe less scandalous than it first appears. What this is talking about is back in 2013, and I believe again in 2016, hackers found a way to get access to Z-Wave devices and control them. It was a difficult hack because you had to be within 30 to 40 feet of the Z-Wave device, but it was possible. So the Z-Wave Alliance actually changed their security standard and all Z-Wave devices that were certified after April 2nd of last year had to comply with what's called S2 security. That means there's a whole lot of devices out there that are not S2 compliant. We'll talk about that in a second. But this latest security hack is very similar to the ones from a couple years back. Basically, what happens is the researchers have found a way to roll back any S2 device to S0, which means they can basically perpetrate that same hack again. Yeah. Should you freak out? Kevin and I are not so worried because, again, this requires really close physical proximity. It feels like the same kind of level of danger of someone trying to get access to your Wi-Fi password by sneaking in and trying to see the authentication and getting access to the encrypted password when your router tries to connect to new devices. Yeah, the threat window for somebody trying to do the Z-Wave hack is like 20 milliseconds. I mean, the timing of it has to be very precise, have to be close by. I mean, is it possible? Sure, it's possible. But if your S2 device does get rolled back, or if you add an S0 device to your Z-Wave network, you should actually get notified that such a thing has happened. So we got all excited about this, but 
there's kind of a little bit of a downside, which is not many hubs are S2 certified. So we looked at the Wink Hub, not S2 certified, according to its Z-Wave documentation. That, that's the Wink Hub 2, the newest one. Sorry. Yes, the Wink Hub 2. We look for smart things, also does not appear to have S2, which means if you were hacked, you wouldn't know. True. So We should probably put the link in the show notes to the catalog on Z-Wave Alliance where you can actually look up on the database what devices are certified. And if you look for your device, it'll actually say if it has S2 compliance or not. We will do it. Yeah. Okay. So that is the scoop on the Z-Wave challenges. Now, what else do we want to talk about? Oh, have you rebooted your router yet, Kevin? I have not, even though the FBI is suggesting, please reboot your router, everybody. And I, I don't know, this, this actually all started last week with a, I guess it would be called a botnet attack. I think it was targeted towards the Ukraine electrical grid, but obviously it's to create the attack. It's not just using routers and things in the Ukraine. It's using them from all over the world. I think it was called VPN filter, and it did target certain routers from Linksys, Microtik, Netgear, and TP-Link. And what the FBI is saying, and, and they actually took control of the server that was spreading this, so that's good, but it still may be out there on routers. They're saying just reboot your router. I don't think that's enough. I mean, if you're that concerned, I think what you really need to do is factory reset your router because rebooting it, if the code is persistent, it's going to be there when you reboot. So I know that resetting a router is a challenge. It's a pain. But if you're that concerned, I think you should do the extra step and do that. Reset it. Our note to you guys, especially if you have lots of connected devices in your house, when you reset your router, make sure you do the exact same SSID and password. Otherwise, you will be running around your house like a crazy person, resetting your SSID and password on Every all device. of your devices. Yeah, I mean... That's the thing. You have to determine how far you want to go here because some people may say, well, I don't even want to use the same SSID and or password. Well, what you're going to do then if you don't use it is exactly what you said, Stacey. You're going to have to go back and every single device that connects to your Wi-Fi network is going to have to be reconfigured to work with the new quote unquote new network. Have fun, you guys. <laughs> All right. So after you've rebooted your router, continue listening to our show so you can find out why Amazon will buy a security firm. Dun, dun, dun. I thought this was a really good article. Julie Jacobson over at CE Pro, she wrote a story about Amazon's need for a security firm because, as we've talked about forever on the show, security is the gateway drug to the smart home. Amazon needs to have this. Plus, they need actual boots on the ground, and a security company already has those. And we've talked about companies like Vivint. Vivint has been on the market forever. Like, probably not forever, but they have been for sale. So it's totally possible that you would see Amazon pick up a company like Vivint, maybe like an ADT. They have private equity earners now that might want to sell, but my money would be on Vivint because they've basically been owned by the same private equity firm for a while, and it's getting ripe. It's getting ripe in their portfolio. So Julie points out a couple really astute things. Amazon can't install their own security products without having alarm certifications. So they need to get that. They also want more technicians for their Amazon expert services. And they want to basically sell more devices. So if you have an alarm code, boom, you've got it. You know, that's a ton of stuff. And that gives them service revenue from a remote network monitoring system. And they can then become like this amazing managed service provider for the home, which is something the broadband companies also would like to be and the security companies would like to be. But Amazon would be in a better position because they have Madam A, 
the digital assistant. And that gives her more intelligence. It's kind of a win. So it is. I'm not going to say Julie's wrong. I still think Amazon ends up buying Wink because I don't think the Echo Hub or Echo Plus is all that, but that's just me. And Amazon is deploying Wink Hubs through their smart home security offering. The strange thing is Julie points out that they need to be certified installers in because of certain laws, regulations, and such. They said they're very quirky laws. But Amazon is already installing these with Amazon employees. So she kind of lost me there, I got to be honest. There are rules in each state about who can do what associated with monitored alarms. So it may be that they're installing this, but they're not offering monitoring. That could be. So we can reach out to Julie. If Julie, if you're listening, let us know. I still think, I do think it's a good idea. I'm not going to lie. I think it's probably pretty smart. So we'll see what happens. Maybe we'll have fancy, fancy news from Amazon at some point. Okay. And now let's talk about, oh, low power wide area networks. And let's call it cellular network. So basically, ways to get enterprise and industrial stuff online. Kevin? So there's a new partnership between two companies. One we've talked about before, which is Sigfox. They have a proprietary network that they are trying to roll out around the world. And Here Technologies, which does a lot of mapping data, location type information. Their location suite, the Here Location Suite, references billions of Wi-Fi hotspots. And when you combine the Wi-Fi hotspots with Sigfox's network, now you've got the capability to track tagged assets in the supply chain logistics area. So that's what they're doing. They're announcing a partnership to develop and deploy a global location service for supply chain logistics. They don't mention anybody using it. So this is brand new. This is just a partnership. And they're talking about the big, you know, $1.9 trillion opportunity for global supply chain and logistics. But I think it's a smart partnership because they're bringing together two readily accessible technologies here and providing an option to the traditional site companies and, you know, NBIOT and other technologies for this type of thing. And speaking of cellular technologies, Electric Imp, which makes a module, it was originally, they made a Wi-Fi module that was more secure and provided you, connected you to the Electric Imp cloud. So basically it was like IoT in a box or in a module specifically. So now they have Imp Cellular, which is a cellular version. It offers LTE Cat1 and 3G. And you can do lots of, it's got computing on it and everything. And then eventually they're going to add in Q4 a CAPM NBIOT version. And just for you guys who may not be super familiar with various cellular low power wide area networks, CAT1M allows you to use more data. So up to a megabyte of data, I believe it is. And the cellular providers can roll that out pretty much with a software update. For NBIOT, you're looking at smaller data rates, so or slower data rates, so you can transfer less data. And the cellular providers actually have to update their infrastructure a little bit more at their towers to support this. They are supporting it. It's becoming very much the standard across the world. But if you've got a bigger application, CAT M1 makes sense. Smaller, less data-rich, NBIOT makes more sense. So this is good news. Electric Imp has done a really good job for enterprise customers of making it very easy to get something online and keep it consistent around the world. So this has been popular in regulated industries where you can get approvals for you know your cloud provider and your cellular provider, and then you're done, which is nice. So We'll see more about this. Pricing for the cellular connectivity is going to be based on the number of devices connected each month, and it'll just automatically go through your account. Your devices that do not connect aren't charged. 
In the US, the devices are going to use T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon, and wherever you have the best coverage. So it sounds a lot like what Twilio is doing with their wireless connectivity program as well. It's great because we're seeing a lot of these middlemen come in and provide cellular connectivity without companies having to go and try to do deals with the cellular carriers, which if you're not a big company, it's tough. And even if you are a big company, you may want something that's a bit more global. So yeah, you can actually pre-order this module too and get it around July 30th for 85 bucks, which isn't too terribly expensive if you want to do some prototyping and testing. So play around with it. Let us know. All right. Let's go on to our experience. Yesterday, Kevin and I decided, hey, let's test out that Amazon smart scheduling stuff we worked on or we talked about last week. And <laughs> we spent like an hour. It was, yeah. It was surprising how much time we ended up spending on this. That's kind of because you really have to be pre-configured in a sense to use it effectively. And the more we set it up, the more I realized this is not something consumers are going to use. This is more of an enterprise type service. And it's going to be enterprise within your own enterprise. So this is probably great for internal meetings. So what this is, is basically you're able to say, Madam A, and again, we do that to avoid setting off your Amazon Echo. But Madam A, schedule a meeting with Kevin Tofel. And then theoretically, she's supposed to say what time is the meeting or she might suggest a scheduled time based on when you're free. Yeah, she first checks both calendars to see what options are available and explains you are both available from this time to this time and this time to this time. When would you like the meeting? So to make this all work, because it sounds awesome, because it's yeah. such a pain to schedule meetings, right? To make this work, you have to have a couple things going for you. One, you have to have your calendar linked to the Amazon Echo. Two, you actually have to share your calendar access with the person you're trying to make the appointment with. That's why I say this is more of an enterprise play. Yes. So I did share my calendar with Kevin. He shared his with me, but this is not something we would normally do. And you also have to make sure your contacts are clean when they go into Madam A. So for example, I had an old email address for Kevin in one of my contacts. And that unfortunately is the one that the Amazon Madam A app looks at. So you can't edit your contacts from within the app, the Amazon app. You have to go to your contacts app. And then once you've done that, it doesn't actually propagate right away to Amazon. And that depends. For me, it did propagate because I had to edit Stacy's information as well in my native contacts app. I did it on my iPhone and it propagated immediately. You did it on your, I don't know which Android phone you have. And it, it didn't, didn't pro it, it didn't propagate for like an hour. It now has the right information, which is nice, but it did not happen right away. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's a cool service without a doubt. And to be honest, I mean, I would schedule meetings with third parties when I worked in corporate all the time. And if they're in my contacts app, I'd have their information. I wouldn't necessarily be sharing calendars with them. So it would not work for that. You can set a calendar hold though. So you can actually do it. And what'll happen is the calendar invite will be emailed to them and then they can see it. So, you know, that's nice. The other nice thing about this, I thought maybe it was specific to Amazon made Echo devices only because some features are only for Amazon devices, but I tried it this morning on the Sonos One that has Madam A built in, and I was able to do the exact same thing with, with Stacy. So it does work on third-party Echo devices. So there you have it. And this is compatible with Microsoft 365, Google G Suites, and several other 
popular corporate email applications. So, you know, maybe if you've got people you schedule meetings with a lot, and this is something you're interested in, maybe just connect with them and you're like, hey, let's do this calendar sharing thing. So a rhetorical question, why doesn't the Google Home do this? Yeah. Moving right along. (laughs) I did actually run into Mark Spates, who's in charge of Google speakers efforts at a conference I was at last week. And I asked him about that. And he actually said that that is a common complaint and they're working on it. Yeah, I didn't feel much better, but you know, there we have it. So, all right. Essential phone. Kevin, I saw this and I was really sad because the essential phone is not doing well and the company may be trying to not develop the essential phone too, might be able to sell that business. What's going on? Yeah, there's been some talk of Essential putting itself up for sale, definitely canceling the second Essential phone. I bought the first one. It has not sold well. The estimates are like 150,000 phones, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things. Andy Rubin, who basically brought the Android operating system to Google when Google purchased Android, he's in charge of Essential and he put a tweet out saying, you know, we're constantly evaluating our products and we are... still focused on creating great mobile and home products. And maybe we don't care so much about the mobile bits for this show, but the home products we do care about because Andy had said when the company launched that they were going to bring forth the ambient OS that would tie all of our home devices together. We haven't seen that. I've spoken with Essential at CES and pretty much got a no comment. You know, things are in the works. When we have more, we'll share. What does this mean for ambient OS? I don't know. I mean, if they get sold, maybe they still plow ahead with that? Maybe they don't. I don't know. There's a lot up in the air right now. I was really excited to see Andy Rubin's interpretation of like a smart home OS. So I I am too, but I was always concerned about it. And I still am because he had said that they're just going to work with public APIs from all the different device makers to tie everything together. And those APIs change all the time. So I don't know. All right. We won't stay depressed over that for long. Let's talk about some kind of quick news bits. So Arlo, the smart cameras made by Netgear, for some users, they haven't been able to log into their app for several days. And Arlo, I gotta say, the response to this has not been awesome. So it took them a while to figure this out. And then they're saying it's a DNS issue for users and users should reset their DNS settings, which that's a pretty technical thing to ask people to do. (laughs) I mean, it's easy to do, but most people, it just happens automatically. They don't worry about it. A lot of people have never been into the DNS settings. So yeah, that's not the answer. Also this week, D-Link has some new Wi-Fi cameras and they have home connectivity with Google Assistant, Amazon Alexa, and If This Then That. There's a trio of cameras, the HD Wi-Fi camera, which will cost... $59.99. There's a full HD Wi-Fi camera for $89.99 and then a full HD pan and tilt Wi-Fi camera for $99.99. What I like about these, they offer four different service levels if you want to subscribe or not. That's up to you for cloud storage of the video. They have a free option that works with up to three cameras and has a 24-hour rolling history of what's being captured. Then they have a basic option for a week that you can get for 25 bucks a year, a premium option for 14 days, and also adds two more cameras. So five cameras for $50 a year. And the pro version stores video for 30 days in the cloud, lets you have 10 cameras and is $100 a year. I actually like that pricing scheme. And I wish more companies would kind of look at that, give you those kind of different levels and even up the number of devices as well. Yeah, it gives you a lot more opportunity, I guess. I don't know. So we also have a quick update. LG's 2018 TVs now work with the Amazon Echo. So you can talk to Madam A 
using your LG TV? They already had Google Assistant, so this was the addition of Amazon. And I don't really care for HomeKit, but I'm really excited about these devices. So Elgato, which makes HomeKit-enabled sensors and other connected devices, they've announced new HomeKit-enabled sprinkler control system. Actually, it's like a hose control system and a lamp called the Eve Flare. So Kevin thought I'd be excited by the flare lamp because I do love my lighting. And this is a HomeKit-enabled portable LED lamp. It's unfortunately only available in Europe. Boo. Boo. It's it's GDPR compliant. Yeah. It reminds me of the Philips has one called the Go Light. And that's like a light. It looks like a bowl and it glows and it's really cool. So that is available. It's 99 euros. So kind of pricey. And then Elgato Aqua is basically a little irrigation controller. And I've been in the market for one of these and haven't found one that I've liked so far. But this is HomeKit enabled. It's you can create schedules for they call it your sprinkler system. This really attaches to a spigot. And then you can control your outdoor irrigation from there. And that's going to be $99.95. And it can be pre-ordered from the Elgato website in the US as of now. So if you're HomeKit enabled, that's actually pretty cool. And maybe I would buy it and just use HomeKit for that. I don't know. We'll see. Also, we got a quick update for the Schlage Sense Deadbolt, which is now compatible with Google Assistant. So you can ask Google if your door is locked or you can say, lock my door. You cannot unlock the door like you can with certain locks and the Echo. When you do that with an Echo, it will actually ask for a pin to unlock the door as well as the command to unlock it for security reasons. So maybe they will add that, but for the moment, you can lock or check the status with a Schlage Sense deadbolt. And finally, Philips Hue has a new app, and I'm going to tell you, guys, it's really good. I have not been, I don't use my Philips Hue app very often because, you know, I've got most of it automated or we just control it with our voice. But the new app, especially for colors and scenes, I like it. So give that a try if you are a Philips Hue customer and let us know what you think. Finally, we have a quick correction. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about Hubitat, which is a local, it's also connected, but the idea is that it is a locally controlled home hub. We said that it had Wi-Fi. It does not. It connects to your router via Ethernet. So there you have it. If you don't like hubs, like Kevin doesn't like hubs, this may not be for you. Or rather, if you don't like the direct connection, this may not be for you. And that's just a location thing for me. Sometimes people's routers are not in a central area, in which case smart home devices may have range issues. So that's my bigger concern. That and ports on my router, but that's a whole other issue. Do not get him started. Don't get me started there. No. Just don't. We're Bad not idea. going there today. Bad idea. All right. So we can distract you. Quick, quick. Let's go to our IoT podcast listener hotline. And guess what, you guys? I have an old Ecobee SI. It works with Google Assistant. It works with Amazon Echo. It is not the pretty cool, awesome Ecobee that I like, but it is a really nice connected thermostat. And if you want to get a connected thermostat for free, just call and leave us a voicemail on the IoT podcast hotline at 512-623-7424. We will be doing this one until June 15th. So that gets you Wow, two whole weeks to call in, leave us a question, and be entered to win an Ecobee SI. Worst case scenario, you get a free internet-connected thermostat that works really well. What's not to love? Okay, so this week's voicemail is actually a really cool suggestion that brings us back into this enterprise area of Madame A. It's from Kevin in Raleigh. Hi, Stacy and Kevin. Kevin in Raleigh. We've spoken before. 
I remember Stacy saying something, I believe it might have been on Twig recently, about the enterprise and IoT devices, not sensors, but things like the Echo, etc. There is a company for about a year, anyways, has been integrating the Echo devices with ServiceNow, the big IT service management function, so that people in the enterprise can do things like approve change requests. Thought you might find it interesting and something to keep an eye on. Okay, Kevin. That's actually a really good idea. And I thought it sounded cool, but Kevin, who's actually worked in this job, (laughs) he has actual opinions that are informed by his experience and facts. Yes, many moons ago, I was starting on a technical help desk in a Fortune 100 company, and I remember opening and closing service tickets like a maniac. Well, it turns out Kevin from Raleigh mentioned ServiceNow, which has worked with a company called Decibel Apps, at least based on the research I found. And they have a skill where you can say, Madam A, ask Ticket now to create an incident. So basically, in the enterprise, if you're on a help desk or you're tracking any kind of incidents, you could just create them by voice if you've got echoes in the enterprise. So it's a pretty cool skill. I know that at the AWS event in November last year, they had a hack your office little party where people are trying to create skills for the enterprise. And I don't know if this came out of it or not, but I know this is available. And there was a white paper written on how to create skills with the Echo and service now. So there's probably like a whole market for these kind of things that we probably don't hear about too often. So I'm glad Kevin brought this up because I would not have known a thing about this. I've been wondering, how do we get these voice assistants in the enterprise? And this is a perfect example of one way to do it. So now you have two reasons, easier service tickets and scheduling meetings. Woohoo! Go Amazon! And remember, the IoT Podcast Listener Hotline is brought to you by Schlage, maker of electronic locks. Schlage smart locks work with most smart home and security systems, so you can get the most out of your lock, whether you're an Apple HomeKit user or you love Amazon's Alexa. To see what's possible, visit schlage.com to learn more. And again, if you want to leave us a message, just give us a call at 512-623-7424, and you will be entered to win an Ecobee SI. And now, stay tuned for Jesse Clayton, who is a product manager for NVIDIA's Jetson. He's actually going to explain a lot of things that you're going to want to hear, such as what the heck is happening when we talk about AI at the edge, why Jetson is becoming so popular in the industrial IoT, and some really cool use cases for computer vision. So stay tuned for all of that. And now here's a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Praetorian. Praetorian provides end-to-end IoT security testing that helps organizations balance risk with time to market pressures. Praetorian engineers help you strengthen the security of your IoT products from chip to cloud. Turn security into your competitive advantage by earning a third-party certification from Praetorian, the leaders in IoT security. Microsoft recognized Praetorian as best in class. When you think Praetorian, think IoT security experts. Check out the case study online to see how Praetorian helped Samsung strengthen the security of its IoT platform by visiting stacyoniot.com slash security. That's stacyoniot.com slash security. Hey, 
everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Jesse Clayton, who is a Senior Manager for Product for Intelligent Machines at NVIDIA. Hi, Jesse. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I am super excited to talk to you because we have been so focused here at the show on edge computing, machine learning at the edge, computer vision, what it can enable. And I feel like NVIDIA's got a lot going on there, which is actually quite unusual from where I thought NVIDIA was going to go. So let's just get started with your main product that you guys are pushing for, we'll call it computer vision at the edge. Is that a fair assessment or maybe it's broader? I think artificial intelligence at the edge is probably the right category to put this in. Okay, so this is a board. This is the Jetson TX2 is the latest version of it. So tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing here. Absolutely. So at NVIDIA, we're laser focused on artificial intelligence. NVIDIA is the world's leading AI platform, and we build products to help our customers deploy AI to different use cases. Now, the IoT is really about computation and communication, and specifically, where do you put the computation for the problem that you're trying to solve? So does it make sense to put the computation or the AI in the cloud? or at the edge, or somewhere in between. In many cases, it belongs in the cloud or the data center, but there are some use cases where that's just not possible, either because of network bandwidth constraints or latency or privacy or availability. And so for those use cases, you really need the AI running at the network edge. And there's two important technologies that NVIDIA is building for AI at the edge. Jetson is NVIDIA's platform for AI at the edge. The Jetson TX2 is a credit card sized device that runs advanced AI in under 10 watts. And our customers use it in autonomous machines like robots and drones for manufacturing and logistics and for other applications in the industrial internet of things like predictive maintenance. Now, there's also some other use cases where even Jetson is too big. And I'm thinking of the trillions of sensors and wearables and mobile devices, and these devices can still benefit from AI. So for these, NVIDIA has the Deep Learning Accelerator, or NVDLA. NVDLA is a hardware architecture that NVIDIA has open sourced to enable companies to benefit from our own AI research and to incorporate this design into their own products. Now, we just announced recently that NVDLA will be available as part of ARM's Trillium platform, and the partnership makes it simple for IoT chip companies to integrate AI into their design. So NVDLA is new, so it hasn't been incorporated into any products yet, with the exception of some of NVIDIA's own automotive products. So I've been covering NVIDIA for a decade now, and I watched it start at GPUs, then go into mobile phone processing because the logic was, gosh, good graphics need to be everywhere, and then going into AI in the data center. So what tipped you off or got you guys thinking about creating these smaller profile technologies for the edge? You correctly stated that our NVIDIA got its start in designing processors, GPUs for computer graphics. And as it turned out, that highly parallel architecture for computer graphics is also very good for many other tasks in computing, and most recently, artificial intelligence. Now, today, a lot of artificial intelligence happens in the data center or in the cloud, but we realize that there's a big opportunity to deploy some of these capabilities out to the network edge. So automotive, self-driving cars was the first example where we really saw an important role that NVIDIA could play in helping to bring that technology. But of course, other devices like robots, drones, portable medical devices can all potentially benefit from artificial intelligence. And so sort of combining those two heritages, the one of designing highly parallel processors that can be used for artificial intelligence, 
and then designing low-power chips for going into mobile products like phones and tablets. We realized that we could produce something that was almost uniquely qualified to deliver artificial intelligence to the edge. All right. And for people who are maybe less familiar with AI, let's talk about the differences between training and the compute needs there and execution or inference. Sure. So maybe I can give a little bit of an example. The first step in modern artificial intelligence and specifically deep learning is training a neural network. This is where you're showing the neural network many, many instances of the thing that you want it to learn. So if you want it to learn to detect people, you show it lots of pictures of people and tell it these are people. Or if you want it to learn to detect cats, you show it lots of pictures of cats and tell it these are cats. And through that process of training, it learns to distinguish the patterns between people and cats and whatever else it is that you decide to train that neural network on. Now, the result of that training activity is a trained model or a trained neural network, which can then be deployed for the second part of deep learning which is called inference. In inference, you're exposing it to new data that it hasn't seen before, and it's drawing conclusions from that data or drawing inferences from that data. So you show it a person that it's never seen before, and it tells you that's a person, or you show it a cat that it's never seen before, and it tells you that that's a cat. Now, the training part of this is very, very computationally intensive. Ideally, you want to be running this in a supercomputer in the cloud. But inference, while it's still computationally intensive, it can be scaled down to fit into some of these edge devices. Okay. And so when we're talking about doing inference at the edge, what are the architectural decisions? What do you need on the computer? So GPUs, it turns out, are good for doing both the training piece and the inference piece. And the reason why that is, is when you're training, what you're really doing is running the data through the neural network. The neural network spits out an answer. So let's say you show it a picture of a cat and it says car. And you say, no, that's not a car, that's a cat. Go back and readjust your weights through an algorithm known as backpropagation, and then run the same data through the neural network again. And through this process, eventually it tunes all the settings in the neural network until it can correctly produce the answer. And then you move on to the next image and the next image and so forth. So that first pass, that forward pass, is actually the same thing as inference. So in training, you're doing the forward pass and the back pass. For inference, you're only doing the forward pass. And so that's why you see these architectures, these GPU architectures being replicated for both training in a server or in the cloud, as well as inference out at the network edge. And so to answer your question succinctly, you need a general purpose, highly parallelized architecture in order to run inference for these neural networks efficiently. Okay, you just don't need as many? That's correct. So inference is one pass, one forward pass through the neural network, whereas with training, you're doing many, many forward passes and many, many backwards passes. And so that's why you need much more computational resources for the training side than you do for the inference side. Now, inference is still computationally complex, and it's continuing to grow. Researchers are advancing the research today. They're designing new neural network designs, and the depth and the size of those neural networks is increasing. And so in order to keep up with today's research, you really need a platform that's continuing to increase its performance capabilities year over year. Okay. And we're going to talk about that in a bit later when we start talking about workloads. But let's go back to kind of business decisions that NVIDIA is going to be making around this. So I originally reached out to you guys because I had heard that the Jetson TX1s had been flying off the shelves, one of the fastest rising from a percentage point IoT platforms out there. Let's talk about what people are doing with this. Sure. So 
Jetson is suitable for applications where you need a lot of computation for AI, but you're constrained by power or space. So for example, in robotics, there's a big need for AI capabilities, but it turns out it's really hard to do because you need this massive amounts of compute in the size and power envelope that's typical of these edge devices like robots. In order to optimize crop yields and reduce the use of sprayed chemicals, Blue River Technology uses cameras mounted on tractors to differentiate crops from weeds and to deploy treatment only where it's needed. So this allows them to dramatically reduce the amount of sprayed chemicals and the speed at which they can drive the tractors depends on how fast the processor can process the image. So for them, Jetson is really critical to productivity. We also see a lot of work in navigation where robots are using AI to localize and navigate like last mile delivery robots made by Marble or by Robbie. Jetson's also being used in manufacturing. Vio Robotics develops technology for collaborative robots that can work alongside humans. And Fanuc uses AI for optical inspection on its robots. Skydio builds this amazing consumer drone that can autonomously navigate through complex environments like mountains and forests and help film people's great moments. So those are all based on AI processing of video data, but there's a lot of other applications outside of robotics using other types of data as well. One really cool use case is predictive maintenance using anomaly detection on time series data. So there's this really clever technique called an autoencoder, where you basically train a neural network to encode and decode a signal coming from this time series data. Like, let's say, the current draw from a water heater in your home. Now, that data, that current draw is going to change normally over the course of the day and the seasons. But if something abnormal happens, an anomaly, the encoder won't be able to encode it properly because it's never seen it before. And so that's a signal that something abnormal is happening. And in many cases, it points to an impending failure. So the homeowner can schedule the maintenance before the water heater breaks. Another really cool application is something called a virtual sensor. So let's say that what you really want to build is a redundant fuel flow measurement for an aircraft. Now, you know that fuel consumption is a function of air temperature and pressure and oil temperature and altitude and speed, but you don't know exactly what that relationship is. You can train a neural network on these data and create what is essentially a virtual fuel flow sensor from these other sensors. So we see Jetson being used for AI at the edge in a lot of ways that we anticipated, but also in a lot of edge applications that we never really considered. That's actually really cool, that virtual sensor idea. This reminds me actually of something that I feel like I hear a lot of video examples. And I feel like a lot of the big tech firms are pushing this concept of video at the edge. So it may be for finding a parking space, it might be monitoring a manufacturing process to understand what's going wrong. But I'm curious how you guys view video versus maybe some of the other sensors out there. Is video always the best option? When should you use video over other sensors or maybe a virtual sensor? Well, video is great because it's such a rich sensor. When you're sending 1080p or 4K of pixels at 30 frames a second, there's just a lot of data there from which you can infer a lot of things. But to your point, there's a lot of cases where video doesn't work. It doesn't work in the dark, for instance. It wouldn't work deep underwater for the same reasons. Or if you're trying to do things like measure the characteristics of a robot or the water heater example that I used, video is not going to help you. So there are all of these other sensors out there that are producing data where we think there's a lot of opportunity to use artificial intelligence to draw insights from that data. I think exactly as you said, most of the research and development is happening on video today because it's such a rich sensor, but there is also a lot of work happening that's getting less attention on these different types of sensors. 
And let's talk about the future. So as you guys are developing, one of my favorite things about silicon is that it should be ahead of the curve because my gosh, it takes a lot longer to build something in silicon than it does in software. So what are the workloads that you guys see being interesting going forward? So one of the things we found in our work with Jetson is that Jetson's been capable of solving many problems in robotics for using artificial intelligence at the edge. But there are many other challenges out there that can't be solved with Jetson because they demand so much more computational power than we can deliver today. And there's two things that I'm really excited about that we believe with future generations we'll be able to address. The first is on the robotic side. Automation is already used to manufacture some products, but it takes so much effort to automate a production line that you only do it for very large run products. So an iPhone, for example, gets a tremendous efficiency benefit from automation, but a small run product, which might be really innovative, doesn't get that same benefit. So it costs substantially more per unit to manufacture. And I think that this has a negative impact on innovation. But robots that can quickly learn to adapt to new jobs and to new products could make automation much more flexible and reduce the barriers of bringing that innovation to market. We believe that with increased computation coming in the future, we'll be able to take on more and more of these manufacturing manufacturing and logistics tasks that can't yet be addressed. The second thing I'm really excited about is in portable medical devices. You know, there's so many places in the world that the physicians don't have good access to technology. So I'm really excited about the potential that AI at the edge has for things like eye care and ultrasound. And with the next generation of processors and capabilities, companies will be able to address some of those challenges. I also like being surprised by innovation that I never would have thought of. The Jetson platform is great for enabling that. And I am super excited about this portable medicine idea. I'm like, ooh, that's kind of fun. I like it. So let's talk about the ecosystem because when we're talking about the internet of things, it's not like you buy a board and you just use it, right? You've got all kinds of stuff that have to work with the cloud, with various other edge providers. So how do you guys work with companies? Maybe it's Microsoft Azure, maybe it's Amazon AWS, maybe it's smaller platforms for the IoT like Ayla, but that seems to be a very consistent trend that you have to link your boards to other people's clouds and services because a lot of these companies who are building these devices, they're not as technically savvy. Yeah, I think there's no question that products made from Jetson are going to exist in a large ecosystem of platforms that are delivering AI at different parts of the network topology. I'll give you one example. So Jetson is used today in Amazon's Greengrass platform. So this is a platform that Amazon has developed to help its customers manage applications for the industrial internet of things. And so Jetson can be deployed out at the edge to manage some of these sensors that you would find deployed in the IIoT, run AI workloads on them, and then manage that Jetson or that collection of Jetsons through this higher level Amazon Greengrass platform. And so we see this sort of approach being replicated in other areas, and we believe it's really going to help our customers and their customers deploy this technology more quickly. So today you're working with Amazon, eventually you'll work with others? Yeah, that's correct. So Jetson is an open platform, and we enable our partners and our customers to integrate their technology with Jetson. Amazon Greengrass is one of the first ones that have been announced, and we expect many more announcements in the future. Okay. And let's just quickly circle back to the NVDLA stuff, because I I saw that announcement, and I was really fascinated because I had covered the ARM Trillium announcement, just as a quick reminder for you guys, the ARM Trillium is a machine learning architecture for the lower power ARM chip. So these are two watt chips, not 10 watt chips. So in putting NVDLA 
on the arm silicon. What should I take away from that for like all of the small companies that are out there trying to develop really low power machine learning chips? Yeah, one of the things that we recognize is that there is this need for artificial intelligence to solve problems in devices that Jetson simply doesn't fit into. Now, of course, we've done a lot of research and development for machine learning, artificial intelligence hardware here at NVIDIA, leverage that hardware ourselves. But wouldn't it be great if companies could leverage that research that we've done to solve these problems for which NVIDIA does not build a product? And so that's what the NVDLA is all about. Companies can leverage the NVDLA. It's been open sourced. The RTL is available for download. People can find it on nvdla.org. And they can design it into their own platforms. The partnership with ARM enables all of ARM's customers and licensees to easily leverage the NVDLA technology into their designs. And so we expect in the future, you'll see many, many products that are designed around this ARM Trillium architecture and incorporate the NVDLA to bring this high performance deep learning inference out to all of these tiny IoT devices that are operating in the sub two watt range. Historically, NVIDIA has worked with a fairly limited number of partners because there are only a few server makers out there. There are only a few game console makers. So as you advance and start selling these boards, how are you guys changing your marketing strategy? Because IoT is vastly different than any other kind of tech ecosystem that's come before. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think one of the things that we realized early on with Jetson is that Instead of having what we typically have had in the past, which is a small number of large customers, in Jetson, we have a very large number of relatively smaller customers. So rather than having tens or maybe a hundred large customers, now we have thousands and tens and thousands of small customers. And so just from a scale perspective, it's not possible for us to engage directly with every one of those customers. We realized that in order for Jetson to be successful, we had to make everything publicly available. We had to enable people, whether it's a startup or an OEM or a guy in his garage, we need to enable them to go from an idea all the way to a final product without having to get on the phone and track somebody down from NVIDIA. One of the things we're seeing is now that chip vendors are really getting serious about providing security updates, patching for the life cycle of some of these embedded products. So we saw Qualcomm do a seven and 10 year support for their Snapdragon embedded. Microsoft announced a 10 year support with their Project Sopra security chips. So with these products, the Jetson products, what kind of support are you guys offering today? And then what are you kind of looking to do for the future? Sure. We actually think about this in two different kind of categories of products. We have products that are more commercial in nature. And for those products, we support those for five years since the launch of the product. And so by support, that means they're still available to purchase. You'll also get software updates from NVIDIA, which in the beginning will focus on functional and performance improvements, but towards the longer life of the project will include security updates to make sure that any vulnerabilities are being patched. So five years for commercial. Now we realize that that's not enough for some applications, particularly in industrial use cases, customers are demanding a 10-year lifetime support. And so for a version of our Jetson TK1-based platform, and also for a product we just announced called the Jetson TX2i, we offer 10 years of support. 
Got it. Although this is saddening to me because I have, let's see, it's a one and a half year old June oven with an NVIDIA. This is a Tegra processor, I believe, inside of it. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, I only have three and a half years left on my oven that the chip will be supported in. (laughs) All right. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. This is a pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. 